Welcome to Truth for Transformation with Timothy Brown. Timothy is the lead pastor of Arden First Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We pray that today's message inspires you to live an extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. Check out our website for more inspiring resources, ArdenFBC.com. Now, here's today's message from Pastor Timothy Brown. Good morning, church. How is everyone? So good to see everyone. Welcome to those watching online. I'm Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we just want to say welcome home. Our mission here is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. And I'm just excited. That song we just sang, it is well. You know, the only way we could say that is if we know that Jesus has taken away our sins. If the cross is enough, and it is enough. And Jesus' final words on the cross before he said, into your hands I commend my spirit. One of the final words he says, it is finished. Think about that beauty. He died for all of the sins, past, present, and future. Almost 2,000 years before we even came, he died and it covered our sins whenever we received him into our lives. Amen. Well, this time I have the opportunity to introduce our guest speaker. Sometimes I like to mix it up. If you guys hear me every week, sometimes that can get old, right? Don't say amen to that, right? So we just wanted to introduce uh, Pastor Nick Honorkamp. Come on up. Nick has been kind of a legend in our community. He's the man, the myth, the legend, Nick Honorkamp. For those of you who don't know him, he has served for several decades as a pastor at New Covenant Church in Clyde. Anyone from Haywood County here? All right, we've got some. Uh, if you're from Haywood, you've heard of New Covenant Church. And uh, Nick has also been one of the team of consultants that we brought on to help us with this church survey. As many of you know, I finished seven years here, and I'm praying that God allow me. I think I got at least 30 more years in the tank if God will allow me to be here and if you guys will have me. So we want this church to continue to thrive and go to the next level, continue to reach more people. So Nick, along with another pastor, has helped us with a consultant. And uh, almost 100 of you guys took the survey, so thank you guys for giving us feedback. We hope to continue to make improvements. So let's give a warm welcome to Pastor Nick Honorkamp. Good morning. Just to give a little context, um, did pastor for 23 years. And in the last two years, I've been working for ABCCM as their church development director, which means it's my job to go to a different church every Sunday. And so in the last two years, we've been to 100 churches in 20 denominations. And I feel like I've had theological whiplash, as conservative as you can imagine, as liberal as you can imagine. But that gives me a great perspective to be able to come and to share some things that I'll be sharing with you guys today. I left that job three weeks ago and started a nonprofit, uh, Kingdom Consulting, to help churches. We've had 15 churches die in the last year in Buncombe County alone. And there's real trauma happening in the church world. And as I spent some time with the Lord, he says, you have a unique view. Pastored for 23 years, been in 100 churches, helped my churches. And I don't feel like I have all the answers or I'm the expert, but I've got friends at 100 churches and in different denominations that together we can bring the best practices from all denominations to help any church that's in need. And so that's what my hope is to be able to do. I'm going to preach a sermon to you today, and then I want to take a few minutes at the end to talk about the survey, talk about the church assessment, and just give you a little bit of perspective. But if you want to go and turn in the Word, if you want to go to Genesis chapter 32, also I want to make mention that I just finished writing a book on forgiveness. 
figuring this is an issue that all of us deal with. And, um, and I want to challenge us that as we unpack the forget, there's a quote in this book that I think is powerful. It says, my abuser lives in my head rent free. And when we don't forgive people, the people that hurt us live in our head and they speak and they take up bandwidth and they take up energy. And so it's important for all of us to learn how to forgive. So my wife and my son are sitting over here. They were in the resource center with, they'll be in the resource center after this service, but they were in the resource center and they were using my phone, uh, to, to take orders. And, um, my wife just looked at me and said, Hey, is your phone on vibrate? And I said, I don't know. And she's, well, we need to make sure you put on vibrate so you don't get interrupted by you. And I said, wait a minute, I'm a career pastor. Who's going to call me at Sunday at 11 o'clock in the morning? I mean, I should get zero phone calls this morning. So if you interrupt me, that's fine, but I don't want to interrupt myself. Today we're going to talk about six ways to wrestle with God and win. How do you wrestle with God and win? And, And I'm just going to, I'll cut to the chase and say this to you. The only way you can win against God is if you're fighting with God for God's purpose. Okay, so the way we win with God is to wrestle with God until God works his purpose in our life. We're going to talk about Jacob. And what's really interesting is Timothy asked me to come preach. He's had me, you know, I want you in general to come sometime in April. But about a week or so ago, he said, "Okay, I want you to come this Sunday. And we're in a sermon series called When God Changes Your Name. And I said, Timothy, did did, you know that I've changed my name, that I don't have the same name that I had at birth? And he says, no, I've never heard that story. And I was like, great. Well, I'll tell you all the story about why I changed my name and how that happened later in the sermon. So stick around for a second. Before we read the scripture in Genesis chapter 32, we're going to talk about Jacob's name being changed to Israel. Let me just give you a backstory, some context about uh, Jacob. You remember Jacob was one of two twins. And if you'll remember, Jacob and his twin brother Esau would wrestle with each other in the womb. I mean, it was so troubling to Rebecca that Rebecca said, Lord, why, why are these two kids inside my stomach constantly wrestling with each other? And God gave her prophetic word that these were going to be two different nations. And so the, the trauma and the turmoil in Jacob's life is real. It started before he was even born. And then, of course, we know the story that Esau was born first and Jacob reached out and grabbed his heel as he was coming out. And the name Jacob means uh, heel grabber, supplanter, cheater, and I'll get to that in a minute. But he reached out and grabbed his brother's heel as he was being born. We know that, that Jacob ended up stealing Esau's birthright. He ended up stealing Esau's blessing. He tricked his father into thinking that he was really Esau. He then left and he went to his uncle Laban's house. While he's at Laban's house, he ended up tricking Laban and stealing a bunch of his flock with the striped and speckled and black flock that he had created. Even when he left, he left Laban's house and didn't tell him he was leaving and just took his kids, his grandkids, a bunch of his stuff and just left. In fact, his wife, Rachel, ended up stealing Laban's gods, his his statues, his idols. And then the last thing is right before this moment where Jacob's going to wrestle, the reason he's wrestling with God is he's running from Laban and Esau hears he's coming. So Esau comes out with a bunch of men with him and now Jacob's trapped between Laban and towards Esau and as a last ditch effort he sends a bunch of flock ahead of him to give as a gift to Esau otherwise known as a bribe to bribe his brother to give him a gift so that he doesn't harm him 
everything about Jacob's life is to cheat, to steal, underhanded, to get ahead. He's working from a poverty mentality that he's not enough. He's not enough. He's got to try this or try that. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. And that matches his name. His identity matches his name. So if God is going to change him, God's going to have to change his name and his identity. And that's what's getting ready to happen in Genesis chapter 32. So this is what it says. That same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children across the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man, and we know this is God, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. This is what I live for. I live for these moments where I see God face to face. I wrestle with him and survive. Imagine all the other troubles in life that just don't seem to matter if you've wrestled with God and saw him face to face and you have survived. And I think I used to say this a lot about the children of Israel when they used to pine about, you know, Egypt and, you know, those things. And you're not all the way out until you're all the way in. Until you've tasted of the promised land, you're going to tend to look back on the good old days with some level of joy, desire. And I think for us Christians, we've got to not just get out of sin, get out of our old man, but we need to get far enough into the blessing and the goodness of God that we lose desire for the things of the earth, the things of the flesh. And I don't, and a lot of Christians are not all the way in, so they struggle with being all the way out. Just a thought. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because he because of his hip, and I always say this, never trust a leader that doesn't have a limp. If they've not walked through some stuff, of some failures and disappointments, if they've not survived some things, they're still unproven. But if they can walk with a limp and show you the problems that they've had in their life, their failures, their disappointments, if they can look back and say, oh, but my God is a good God and He knows how to redeem, that's the kind of leader I want to follow. Not someone who distances themselves from their failures and disappointments that they've come through, but can gladly boast in the power of God to bring us through the hard times of life. I trust a man who has a limp, who's wrestled with the Lord and walked away. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of that thigh. So we look at Jacob's name. It means heel grabber, supplanter, cheater. And this sets his destiny. This, this impacts his whole life. Now, the scandalous thing about what I just said is who gave him that name? Good old mom and dad. Cheater, it's time for lunch. Come on in, cheater. Hey, cheater, it's time for school. Let's get you dressed and ready for school. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that's what your name was? And again, it's, it's, it's what came, what happened in the womb. But still, as parents, we've got to be careful what we call our kids and careful what we say. I know a person right now 
whose father is a pastor. And you know what their big hang-up is? Is their father used to call them the good daughter. And being called the good daughter set up a lot of baggage. The father meant it for good. You're the good one. You behave. You're always, you know, you're, you're good. But then they always felt like that they never could be themselves because they had to act a certain way to be received. And as parents, we gotta be so careful what we call our kids and what we do. So here's Jacob. He'll play, he'll grab her, supplanter, cheater, and he goes through all this stuff. And then he comes to this moment where he's gonna rest with, with the Lord. So I'm going to give you six ways to wrestle with God and win. The first is that we have to send everyone away. The first thing that Jacob does is he takes his wife, his wives, his servants, and his kids and sets them on the other side of the river. He sets them over there so that he can get alone with the Lord. And I have found that sometimes in my life I need to distance myself from the people around me to get a fresh perspective of how God sees me. If we're not careful, we'll let the people around us define us. And I I know of people who go on mission field trips who come back with a fresh vision of what God's called them to be because they got away from everybody else in their world that expects them to be a certain way or needs them to be a certain way. You know, if you get ready to change, there's some people in your life that won't want you to change. Because they depend on you being who you are. And I remember a time in my life, this is one of the first times I ever wrestled with God. I just came on staff. I'd been on staff for one or two years. I was working underneath another pastor, Dr. Frank Harvey. And for whatever reason, I was learning what it meant to be a pastor, dealing with the challenges, the expectations, all the stuff that comes with being in the ministry. And I was really struggling. It was hard for me to come out of the secular world into the pastorate. And I just didn't feel like I was doing a very good job. Uh, my pastor was not happy with me. The rest of the staff didn't seem to be happy with me. We had two little kids at the time. Tina wasn't happy with Nobody was happy with me. Have you ever been in a season in your life like that where it feels like nobody's happy at all with you? So I did the only thing I needed to do. This is about 30 years ago. I rented a little motel room in Black Mountain. No internet, no TV. I just took a boom box that dates me a little bit. Boom box and some cassette tapes and worship tapes. And I just went and I sat alone for three days with the Lord. And after a little while, God whispered a question to me. He said, who are you? Now, let me teach you something about the Lord. Anytime the Lord asks you a question, it's not for his information. If God ever asks you a question, it's for your information. He's getting ready to tell you something you don't know. And so he says, who are you? And I'm like, Lord, you know who I am. I'm Nick. I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a father, I'm all these things. And I went through a list of titles that I have in my life. I listed them all out. I figure if he's going to ask the question, I'm going to answer the question. So I answered him. And he said, one day you're going to die and spend eternity with me. And every single title you have on that page will go away. Except for one. You will always be my son. You are a son of the living God. You get that right, and all these other relationships and titles will fall into place. Start there. Please me. Build your ministry around serving me and pleasing me and not pleasing people. And you'll be wildly successful. 
And I've carried that my whole ministry, my whole life, that I am a son of the living God. And if you don't like me, you're the one with the problem. Just joking. Not everybody likes me. But part of wrestling with God and winning is setting the people in our lives away from us. So they don't keep redefining who we are and we get a chance to sit with God. Who am I all by myself between me and you? I think it's important. Number two, we not only send everyone away, we send everything away. What he also did is he sent all his flock, all his wealth, everything, all his possessions, he sent them across the river before he wrestled with God. And this can be very difficult, particularly for men who are type A, who are performance driven, because a lot of times we define ourselves by our titles, our successes, our wealth, uh, our reputation, our name, our influence, our network, who we know. Um, there's so many things that we use to define whether we're a success or not. And there's nothing wrong with those things in their place. If they're in their place, that's fine. The Lord would love to bless us and cause us to have a reputation and have influence and even bless us with stuff. But it has to, it can't be our Lord. It can't be our lead. It has to follow us, not lead us, right? And so one of the things that Jacob has done, Jacob has stolen the birthright, stolen the blessing, he's stolen the flocks. Now he has to set all that aside and sit with God without any of that stuff. And every once in a while, the Lord will ask us to give up our stuff to redefine who we are as people and redefine our identity. One of the things of wrestling with God is he's got to break us of our addiction of needing stuff and needing things to prop up ourselves. Many times we will we'll, we'll, we'll look at our lives and we'll say, well, well, I can look at this measurement and this measurement and this measurement, but none of that pleases God. Can we please God despite all that stuff? I was telling a story in first service that I was driving down the road and the Lord whispered to me and he says, I hate when you give the devil credit for things I did. I was like, well, excuse me, I'm just driving down the road. And he's like, yeah, he's, I just hate it when you give the devil credit for things that I, I did. And I said, give me an example, one example. And Papa's so good. He says, do you remember when you were a teenager? Now, this is what happened. I was like 17 years old. I worked at Waynesville Country Club. I worked in the cart shack. I'm cleaning clubs, taking care of golf carts. Then a golf tournament would come in, and, and these folks would play golf for about three or four days. And whenever they left, they always left a big tip. And then they would split the tip among everybody who had worked the tournament. And that day, I got a tip, and the tip was $40. Now, in the mid-'80s, $40 to a 17-year-old was a lot of money, right? So I get $40 tip from my job. I'm driving home from my job with the $40. I roll through a stop sign with a state trooper right behind me, and the state trooper gives me a ticket. Guess how much the ticket was for? $40. So for years, I preached about if you come from a poverty mentality, and I did. My first memory ever with money, I had a paper route when I was nine years old. The first memory I ever had is every time I would get some money and save it, my father would come and take my money. He, he would need it for something. So I always learned that if you work hard, you might still lose it and you won't get to keep it because somebody else will need it. And that was a theme that ran through my life. And so I would preach and I would talk about that if you have a poverty mentality, you'll expect something bad to happen. And, and so I, I went through, I used that as an example, that story of that day. I got a $40 tip before I could even get home. The devil stole it. 
And the Lord said to me, he said, uh, instead of giving the devil credit for that, what if in my sovereignty I knew you'd be a knucklehead, I knew you'd roll through the stop sign, and I gave you the money to pay for the fine before you even committed the crime? In fact, doesn't that sound like the gospel that I paid the price before you even sinned? Now, doesn't that sound like me? He said, I quit giving the devil credit for that $40. I paid the fine before you even did the crime. I said, God, you are so good. You are so good. But it's, it's, it's getting rid of some of those, those things that we lean on our resources. You know, I go to Africa on mission trips, and I'm stunned at the American church and how much we lean on technology and air conditioning, nice places like this. And yet you go to a seven-hour church service out in the hot sun, and they love Jesus and are having just as good a time as we are, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So sometimes to wrestle with the Lord, we've got to set everyone across the river. We've got to set everything across the river so we can get alone. Which brings me to point number three. Engage God with your emptiness. Engage God with your emptiness. Gosh, we don't like being empty. We don't like being alone. We're on our phone. We're on the television. We're on the internet. We're calling somebody. We're reading a book. We don't like to be alone. But when we get alone with God, incredible moments can happen in our life. Incredible moments. One of the things that happened to me is, is about five years ago, I went on a mission trip to Africa. And uh, I met a, an African bishop there, and he said to me one day, he says, you don't pray enough. And I'm like, well, excuse me, but you don't even know my prayer life. And he says, no, I pray for three hours every night, and I can smell whether you pray or not, and you do not pray. I'm like, help me, Jesus. <laughs> so I went home, and when I got home, the Holy Spirit whispered to me and said, that wasn't him, that was me. I want to teach you how to pray. I need you to give me an hour a day in the sanctuary for 40 days. And I said, okay. Now, I'm a type A, go get them kind of guy. I got a to-do list right now in my notebook for today. And yet, the Lord's like, I don't want you to bring a notebook. I don't want you to bring your Bible. Don't write a sermon. You're here to spend an hour with me in prayer. And at first, I was like, what are we going to talk about for an hour? I mean, a whole hour. At the end of those 40 days, I, with great joy and satisfaction, told the Lord, we did it. It's over. He said, yeah, now I want two hours a day in the sanctuary. I said, there is no way. I have too much responsibility. There is no way I can give two hours a day. I just can't do it. There's just no way. But I did. And so I started praying two hours a day. And one day I finished praying and I had like 20 things to do on my to-do list. And I told the Lord, I said, okay, now I need you to help me with my to-do list. We've prayed for two hours. Now it's time to go out there and do the stuff. I need your help. And God clearly said to me, no, I'm not going to help you. I said, excuse me? He says, no, I don't want to help you with your to-do list. I said, you sort of owe me. I mean, I've been praying for two hours. I mean, you know, you sort of owe me, don't you? And you ever talk to God like that? He's not threatened when you talk to him like a real person. He is a real person. And he don't owe me anything, by the way. And he says, no, nah, I don't feel like helping you with your to-do list today. I said, I don't understand. You made me to be high-performance, productive, type A, get things done. We just spent two hours in prayer. If you, why, why, why won't you help me? He said, because I didn't create you to do that. I didn't create you for what you could produce. And I said, then why did you create me? And he says, because I created you from joy, pleasure, and delight. 
I like you. I enjoy you right where you are. I don't need you to do one thing for me for me to love you any more than I already love you. Folks, I prayed long enough that I experienced the pleasure of God for who He made me to be. That has nothing to do with what I can produce. There is a place in emptiness that if you sit long enough, He shows up. And He touches something in your life that you no longer need success anywhere else because you know the one God of all creation is madly in love with you and enjoys you for just being you. I didn't quite understand that till we had our first grandbaby. But if you've had any grandkids, you got grandkids? Oh, they're the joy of the world, aren't they? I'm telling you right now, that little one walks in, whatever he wants he can have. Pops just wants to be with him because I just love everything about him. And Papa one day said, you know, I feel that way about you. And I said, that's so hard for me to believe that you feel that way. But he does, and he feels that way about you too. Prayer is not just about getting answers. Prayer is about discovering who God is and who you are in relationship to God. Number four. We've got to wrestle past the night. Wrestle past the night. If you remember in this story, God says to him, okay, let's stop wrestling. The night's ended. The day has come. You know, daytime's here. Let's stop. And Jacob wisely says, nope, I'm not stopping just because the day has come. I won't stop until you bless me. I know lots of Christians that know how to wrestle with the Lord as long as there's a storm in their life and it's nighttime. But let the storm pass and they go back to the exact same stuff they did before. They know how to, how to pull up themselves and how to face God. They know how to press in for prayer. They, they, they start tithing. They come to church. They read their Bible. They do all this stuff because there's a storm in their life and they're trying to deal with the storm. But their whole relationship with God is based around the storm. So every time the storm is over, they go back to doing whatever they do. They don't keep wrestling with the Lord and doing the other stuff. They just they wait to the next storm and then another storm comes. And there are some Christians that are not 20 years old in the faith. They're one year old in the faith 20 different times. Have you seen this? And they're like, well, I've been, I've been saved for 20 years. Yeah, but you've not gotten past first grade because we quit whenever the storm leaves. We're supposed to stay with engaging with the Lord beyond the storm because our life is not run by the storm. It's led by the Lord. And Jacob said, I don't care if it is daytime. I don't care if the storm's passed. I'm not leaving here without a blessing from you. And I would encourage us as Christians is learn to wrestle with the Lord even when there's not something that you have to have move, something you have to have happen. Because God is a good, good God. I was talking to somebody recently and they said, I trust in God's sovereignty, but I do not trust his goodness. Wow. I said, have you even met him? If you've met him, you know he's good. He's a good, good father. And sometimes you've got to wrestle past the night and find out that he's a good, good father, even when circumstances don't look the way that we want them to look. I have somebody in my world right now that I love dearly. Who told me that they fired God because they've had a painful thing happen in their life. And they've had to, they just said, you know, this painful thing happened that God could have stopped, but he didn't stop it. Now I'm taking the steering wheel back from my life. I trust the Lord to go and fix that. I trust the Lord that he will walk with that person long enough 
to where that person changes their mind over that one circumstance. And that person finds out that God is a good, good father. You know, in this book, one of the things I talk about is the two hardest people to forgive is yourself and God. It's hard to forgive ourselves from the mistakes that we've made. But it's also hard to forgive God sometimes when things happen that we don't understand. And what I would propose to you is this, is that God created a perfect world and a perfect plan. But when we invited sin in, sin began to destroy everything. And now we live in a fallen world where there's natural disasters, there's disease and pain and bad things happen to good people. But it does not, it doesn't speak to God's character. God hasn't changed. We welcome sin into our perfect little world and we begin to destroy it. And there's consequences with all that. But I will say that God is a good, good father. There's a story I, I tell every once in a while. I went to a, a wedding and there's an old preacher and he was praying over the couple. Sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus. Bless this couple. Sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus. Oh, sweet Jesus. And he said sweet Jesus like 40 times. So after the sermon, after service, I went up to him. I said, excuse me, sir. I, I've never heard a preacher pray like that. I mean, you said sweet Jesus like 40 times. He's an old mountain preacher. He said, well, son, if you've ever met him, you know he's sweet. And I said, that's a good sermon right there. That's the truth. If you've ever really met him, you know he's sweet. If you've ever really met him, you know he's good. Wrestle through the night and keep wrestling until he blesses you. Number five, wrestle past the pain. And uh, Jacob wouldn't give up even when God touched his hip socket. I know people who have served the Lord faithfully until a pain stole their joy. And now they can't get past the pain. They just can't get past it. They, their whole life right now is defined by that one pain. I'm not saying it's not valid. I'm just saying God is bigger than that. I'm just saying God is, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up a word, He's gooder than that. His goodness is bigger than the pain they're walking through. They just haven't figured it out yet. They haven't worked through it. And I have so much confidence in God that He will finish what He has begun. He's not threatened when someone has a moment where they question their faith or they're challenged with something or they've walked through the night or they're in deep pain. But sometimes we got to wrestle past that and wrestle into the goodness of God. And then the last thing is we wrestle past the past. Or I put shame here. Because he asked Jacob in this private moment. I mean, Jacob has set everything across the river. He's totally alone. He's wrestling with the Lord. The night has come and gone. God touches his hip. He's in pain. And he says, I won't leave. And then God asks him the critical question. He, God's the greatest marriage counselor of all time. It takes about two questions for him to get to the source of the truth. He's the best counselor. What is your name? And Jacob has to say, I'm the cheater. I'm Jacob. He'll, he'll grab her, supplant her. He says, no longer. From now on, you'll be called God prevails. You'll be called Israel. I'll form a nation out of your new name. What you've wrestled, it's powerful. What you wrestle with privately has incredible public gain. What you wrestle with one-on-one has the power to impact generations, communities, people. What God can do through one man and one woman who will wrestle with Him until He's finished with them has unbelievable repercussions for the rest of us. 
This Jacob is going to become Israel, which we will have a nation named after that God says, I'll bless the whole earth through this one nation because of Israel wrestled and got rid of his old name. He had to do that. But what he did, we're still benefiting from today. We have to wrestle past our past. Don't don't run away from your past. All right. So now I'm going to tell you my personal story. And I always try to do this carefully because I would never want to dishonor my mom and dad. My mom and dad. They were pot smoking hippies in the 70s and did the very best they could, right? They just, they did the best they could. They, um, I was born to an 18 year old mom, a teenage mom. So I just, um, let me give you that context before I tell you the story, alright? So, I was born into a family and I did not know that at the time my mother was having an affair with another guy and she got pregnant by him. And she knew it was his, but nobody else knew. So she named me after her husband to throw off any scent that she'd been having an affair. So she named me Lloyd Nicholas Melton after Lloyd Melton, the guy who was married to my mom. So everything seems fine until about two years later. And my mom has decided she doesn't want to be married to Lloyd anymore. She's young. She's 20 years old. She's 21. I mean, she's doing the best she knows how. And so she runs off with my real dad. And they take off and go and drop out of society. They live in the woods in a log cabin they built by themselves next to a stream. They raise goats and they raise uh, a garden and they raise marijuana. And they just hang out in the woods. And they're just this loving life, just live. My sister, I had a sister that was born during that time, and they didn't even take her to the hospital. Guess what they named her? Nature. To this day, she is a wild child. Red hair, wild. She matches her name, Nature. And so they're, they're out there, and they realize it's probably not the best idea for a brand-new baby to be living out in the woods with no, no power, no electricity, just living with a couple potheads, you know, and, and all that. So they, they come back into society. They come back into society. And, and one day they hear about, they get invited to this crazy little storefront church that had been hit with the Jesus movement. Remember the Jesus movement? And so they show up at this crazy spirit-filled little storefront church and get radically saved. Just radically saved. My dad ends up being called in the ministry and pastors for decades. You know, it's just crazy. So when I'm 11 years old, they come back to tell me the news. Two things. Number one, that they have been radically saved and met Jesus and he's alive and well and nobody is too far from God that he still saves today. Praise the Lord. And number two, to let me know that's not your daddy, that's your daddy. Interesting. I hate this guy. This guy took my mom. She ran away when I was two years old. I don't like this guy. I hate this guy. And yet... This is my real father and my real mother. So I was 11 years old. I'm sitting at a kitchen table. I'm there with both families. I'm there with who I call my first dad, Lloyd. And I'm there with my second family, Vince and Linda. And they're saying, you need to choose which family you're going to live with. And recently I reached out to my first dad and I said, how did you ever let me make that decision at 11 years old, which family to live with? He's, I knew if you chose me, I'd take good care of you. I also knew if you chose your mom, she loved you and she'd take good care of you. 
and above everything else, you'd have to live with the consequences of that decision. So you, you needed to make it, even if you were 11 years old. So I chose to leave Missouri, come to North Carolina with my real mom and my real dad. But I still had the old name. I still had the old name all throughout high school, joining the Marine Corps, going to the Marine Corps. And it's not until I proposed to Tina and I said, you know, I want, I want to marry you. And she said, yes. And she said, except for one thing. I don't want to be a Melton. You're not a Melton. Why would I marry you and take on a name that's not even your name? You need to change your name from Melton to Honor Camp after your real father. You need to change your name. Well, first of all, I was in the Marine Corps, and I was like, I'm not changing my name in the Marine Corps. That'd be like five years of red tape. There ain't no way I'm doing that at all. First of all, we'll wait till I get out. Second of all, I hate him. <laughs> I hate him. Even though I came to live with him, I hate him. I, I don't want to be. And somehow the Lord did something in my heart and in my life that somehow in the three months between getting out of the Marine Corps and getting married, I was able to go and not only change my last name from Melton to Honor Camp, but I also took on his middle name and named myself after him. I accepted who I was. I accepted my identity. I accepted that the God of the universe who knows all things caused him to be my father. And I accepted it and I named myself after him. And when I did, everything changed. My relationship with him changed. My relationship with my mother changed. Everything changed when I synced up with God's identity and chose to name myself after my father. Now I'm Nicholas Leo Honorkamp after Vincent Leo Honorkamp. So when I run into people in high school, we just ran into somebody the other day that I knew from high school. And if they call me Nick Melton, I know they know me before Christ. I'm like, hold on, come here a second. You've seen the worst version of me. Let me tell you who, what God's done in my life since then. So I know a little bit about name changes. And Timothy didn't know that story till a week ago. I said, you do know you have me teaching on a name change and I've changed my name. He said, I had no idea. And so this is a cool little story. So four things I want to finish with. Four things to understand about a name change. Number one is when you know God by a new name, he will show you who you are in relationship to that name. When you know God by a new name, he'll show you who you are in relationship to that name. And, and this is what I want to say to you about that. In the Bible, there's at least a dozen different names for God the Father. There's at least a dozen names for Jesus. And there's at least a dozen names for the Holy Spirit. Why? One name is not sufficient to describe who God is. So he gives us all these other names that we can know him by. And if you've ever had a, a, a deathly illness and God healed you, you know Jehovah Rophe in a way that the rest of us don't know. You've experienced him. Or if you've ever been stuck in a hard situation financially and suddenly God supernaturally blessed you, you've met Jehovah Jireh in some ways the rest of us haven't met. But when you meet him by one of those names, you then begin to relate to him in a new way. Because the two greatest discoveries you can ever make in your life is who is God and who am I? And you can never fully know who you are until you know who God is. And the more you discover who God is, the more you discover who you are in relation to Him. And, and I told this story first service, and it went, I remember one day, I walked in the sanctuary to pray my two hours, and I called God by a name I've never called Him. I don't even know why I did it. I just walked in and just flippantly said, Good morning, Your Honor. And He said, Good morning, Chief Repenter. I said, Excuse me? He says, yeah, you recognize that one of the roles I play is as a judge. 
Well, I want you to take repentance seriously and intercede for our, con- for our people. Intercede for your congregation. Intercede. When you come in here to pray for two hours, as part of that, would you take time to really understand that my heart for my people and would you intercede for people you know that are struggling? And I said, wow, I never knew. I, I knew I was called to preach. I just didn't know I was called to intercede. But if you truly know that God is your honor, the great judge of the universe, what I can do for you is I can simply sit with the Father and I can intercede for whatever's going on in your life. And he said, I want you to take that seriously, not just preach the word to all the people. Come to me and talk to me about your people. When I was a pastor, we had prayer cards, and I prayed over the prayer requests. And he said, bring them to me every week. I don't want you to delegate that. And I I would say most pastors need to delegate that. But for whatever reason, the Lord said, in this season, I want you to pray for those. And I want you to bring and intercede. So when we know God in a new way, it helps us to know how we are to relate to Him. Number two, a change in name always brings a change in identity. Jacob's problem was not his name. It was not even his behavior. It was his identity. It's how he saw himself. And despite himself, he wrestled with God and God gave him the name Israel, which means God prevails, God overcomes. And so Jacob had focused his whole life on his lack, on his deficiencies, his failures and his needs only to meet God of the universe and realize you're bigger than all of that. Why am I focused on my weaknesses and my failures when I could focus on the God that prevails and overcomes all things? And so when our name changes, it also changes our identity. Number three, God only brings up your past to squeeze your future out of you. Think about this for a second. Jacob is fleeing Laban, who is his present. That's his present problem right now is Laban. Laban's coming after him. And now Esau hears he's coming, so his past, Esau, is coming. So he's got his present in Laban. His past and Esau have got him trapped. And I want to tell you something. The Lord will sometimes bring up your past. It is not to shame you. It's not to embarrass you. It's not to hurt you. It's not to harm you. The only time that God ever brings up your past is to trap you between your past and your present to squeeze your future out of you. And what he's doing right here in this moment is he's trapped Jacob between Laban and Esau so he could get Israel out of him. And if the Lord ever brings up your past to you, it's not for harm, it's for good. Pause there and say, Lord, why are you bringing up my past? I'm not that person anymore because there's a blessing there that you've not walked in yet. There's a promise there that you've not seen yet. There's something in your future God's trying to bring up by bringing your past and your present together to squeeze that out of you. Okay? And number four, last thing is a change in name always brings a change in relationship. Ask any woman who gets married and takes on her husband's last name. There's a change in relationship when you take on a new name. And so it's it's important that, that when we look at the names that God might call us or the names we call Him, it causes us to have a deeper relationship with Him. The more I know Him and His names, the more I can relate to Him. So my hope today in preaching that sermon is that you will make time to wrestle with the Lord. That you will find some time to sit and say, Lord, what are some questions you'd like to ask me? Lord, what are some things that are holding me back that I've never surrendered to you? Lord, how could I create a day to just go out in the woods and go on a hike and just walk and talk with you and get used to your voice steering me and guiding me? My hope is that all of us in this room 
will be inspired to wrestle with the Lord, knowing He's got something good He wants to bring out of us, for us, for our good, but also when we wrestle with Him, who else is going to benefit if we win this battle right now? So I'm going to pause there for a second, and let me move forward to the survey and the church assessment, and talk about that for about five minutes. So I told you I've been in a hundred churches in the last two years, and I can tell you there's only two kinds of churches that will do a church assessment. It's either a church that is desperate and is about to go under and have tried everything they know and there's nothing else to do. So they're willing to bring in some outside help to sort of say, can you see some problems that we can fix or we can change? That's one type. The second type that will invite in an assessment is a church that's a really good church that's not satisfied with being a good church. They want to be a great church. They want to be the best church they can be. And that's what this church is. My wife and I have been here several times in the last two years. It's always, and let me tell you some things we learned. Well, first of all, the process was this. Myself and another Baptist pastor came in. We interviewed the staff. We interviewed the elders, interviewed the deacons. Um, then we did a survey of the whole congregation, and about 100 people filled out the survey. And uh, then we did some demographics around the church, and then we came back together and provided a full report to Timothy and the elders about what we've seen, what we feel like the strengths and the weaknesses are of the church. So let me take a few minutes to talk about some of the strengths. You all have a very friendly church. When we, My wife's nodding right now. As soon as I said that, I saw her out of the corner of my eye. We can, when we come here, we feel warm, we feel welcome, there's some diversity in this church, not everybody looks exactly the same, and that makes you feel a little wel- welcome. If you're a little quirky and a little weird, you feel like, hey, maybe there's hope for me here. And and so, you come in, I, I remember we were here about six weeks ago, just came on a Sunday morning to see what we could see, and you know how the service ran, see if we were greeted, parking lot, all that kind of stuff. And we were sitting over there, and a woman came up and greeted us, and she said, are, are you a visitor? I said, yes. She said, is your, your first time with us? I said, yes, it's my first time. And she says, well, you look like a visitor. And she says, I said, well, how long have you been here? And she said, three weeks. I said, three weeks? And she says, yeah, you look like me. You look lost. You look, you know, yeah, perfect. And I was like, well, how awesome is that that even the visitors are welcoming other visitors? It's catching on. That's some good stuff right there. I was with, um, I was with, I got a chance to speak to the Buncombe Baptist Association about a month ago, speak to the pastors. And they have a director of missions that oversees the Baptist Association for Buncombe County. And Perry Brindley is a minister I've known for decades. And Perry's that guy. And he goes to a different Baptist church every Sunday. Where I go to all these different churches, he goes just to Baptist churches. And he and I lamented in front of all the pastors there is not one-third of the churches we go to that are friendly. Not one-third. They don't speak to visitors. They don't talk to them from the pulpit. There's not visitor cards. There's not a visitor uh, packet. They're just not friendly. And he and I both have had the same experience. This church is friendly. This church is welcoming. This church will stop and talk to you and say, Hey, you look lost. <laughs> Can I help you with something? That's a real benefit. Number two, the preaching And what you stand for is strong, biblical, conservative values. There is no question. It is clear. It is concise. And that's something that came up in the survey time and time again. His preaching and his values match the congregation in that we are a strong, conservative, biblically based. The Bible says it. That's where we land. That's it. 
That's all there is to say about it. And that you appreciate that. You appreciate the strong biblical view and that Timothy's a good preacher. I don't know anybody, I'm serious about this, anybody in this community that prepares more meticulously for a sermon than Timothy does. When we were here six weeks ago, we got the notes and all the stuff. How does he have time to do all this stuff? To preach, has the slides and he's got videos and he's got, he had all this, he had an audio plan that day, he had a video plan that day, he had slides, he has a handout. I was like, my Lord, this takes a lot of time and effort. I'm a preacher, I know. And the, um, the sincerity that Timothy has for the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God and the power for it to change a life from darkness to light on any given Sunday is very appropriate. There's a blend of modern and history here. We sing some hymns in some creative ways today. We're, we're, we're trying to be a church for all generations. And that's one of the things, as we go to these different churches, there are not ten churches in this county. There are not ten of the 500 churches in this county that I'm aware of that have full service ministries from nursery to children to youth to adults to senior adults. They just don't exist. You're one of ten churches that have all that. I was recently with a church uh, about two weeks ago, and they said, we haven't had a VBS since 2017. We don't have any kids. And today you're asking for more volunteers to work in the nursery because you have so many kids. Every church has problems, but you have problems that most churches wish they had. Do you know what it's like to try to figure out how, where's our church going to be in 10 years when we don't have kids and we don't do vbs because we don't have any where are they going to be in 10 years i can tell you where they're going to be there's churches are dying everywhere and it's easy to grow old it's hard to grow young how do you keep the generations together that you don't have a young church or an old church you have a generational churches that can learn from each other and feed on each other that's what you have. You have a brilliant, your missions department. My gosh, you all support more missions in the community that you have a well-defined missions program. Your church is not just for yourself. You're reaching out. You're doing the things that need to be done for others. Three challenges, three areas that came up in the survey, three areas that came up in the interview. And I'll give you the general overview. And then Pastor Timothy in the next couple of weeks is going to be sharing specifics of how, how to address them. Three things we found. Number one is communication. There seems to be a lack of communication on several levels and just really thinking through how do we communicate all the information. One challenge you have is you have two services. So sometimes people in first service don't know people in second service. I pastored a church that had two services. It was a constant challenge. And that's why periodically having one service is just a right thing to do to make sure we all know we're not two churches. We're one church. We're one family. But communication around who are the elders and what is their role? Who are the deacons and what are their role? What's the new projects that are coming down the pipeline that we need to be prepared for? Just doing a better job at communicating all that's going on so everyone is aware and knows what's happening. And Pastor Timothy will speak more to that later. The second thing is that you have some very strong visionary leaders and so they have tons of dreams and ideas. But sometimes before we can finish the first great idea, we've launched two more good ideas. And so the implementation side needs to be beefed up a little bit where we plan things out in advance. We restrict all the new dreams to just a couple new dreams. And we make sure that we have enough people to to implement the dreams God's given us. Now, I've been to plenty of churches where the leader is not a visionary. 
And they're not going anywhere. It's just not, that's not their strength. They're not going anywhere. What I love about this church is you have plenty of vision. You have plenty of ideas and dreams that God wants to do in and through this church. We just need to take a little bit more time to let it marinate and to implement thoroughly those ideas before we move on to the next one. And that kept coming up time and time again. And number three is a pipeline, a place for everyone. We want to build community where there's a place for everyone. From the very first visitor to all the way up to leadership. And part of that is allowing people to be engaged and empowered in the ministry. And so one of the things that's come up is as the ministry has grown, there's not enough volunteers. There's not enough volunteers to do the things we need to do. Somehow we need to make sure that we're engaging everyone, finding out their skill sets and their strengths, and offering them a place on the ministry team to make a a, a significant contribution that will cost you very little because it's something you're already good at. And so these are the three things that we're going to be working on, we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. What I want you to hear is this. One last thing and I'll finish. The survey we gave you is a Barna survey. Barna is the leading standard on Christian data anywhere in the world. So Barna does all this sampling, all this research, and they feed us pastors all kinds of information about trends that are happening in the church world. They are the undisputed expert. This was their survey that we gave you. And what they do is once we give you the survey is they measure this church against every other church that's ever taken that survey. And they have like six categories. You all scored in the highest category. You all scored in the highest category. Yeah. By questions that you had were, how often do you read your Bible? Do you tithe? Do you talk to people about Jesus? How often do you go to church? All those questions got measured against all these other churches. And you were in that top category with room to improve. And that's the place you want to be. We want to be a good, strong, healthy local church with some other ways we can get better. And that's where you are right now. And I applaud Pastor Timothy and the elders for being willing to open up. Obviously, there were some comments that, that, that we learned some things from that we were able to listen at and hear. There were some trends that we saw. And so thank you for your participation. Thank you, Pastor Timothy, for trusting us and letting us come in. And you're a wonderful church. And I just, I'm proud of Timothy, but I'm also proud to be a partner with you in the ministry. So thank you so much. Timothy.